Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes at soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 51. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like, can anyone listen to the Friends theme song without clapping their hands? Is Delroy Lindo aging in reverse? And what the heck happened to Zach Braff? No quote too minor, no side plot too small. This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld level daily observations. So I'm currently ripping through this 90 day how to podcast about how to successfully build a podcast. And the dude running it has his phone going off. There's text messages. There's a bit of background noises. He's erring and umming and liking all the throughout it. He doesn't have the most soothing voice either. It, I'd give him a nasally B minus, but he knows his topic inside and out, has these easy to remember lists and tidbits that are simple to apply. And I'm going to rip through all 90 of these 11 minute podcasts in five to seven days. So this is comforting to me because I'm hesitant to start swimming in the murky waters of sound editing and engineering. And yes, this is partially due to my grandpa yelling at the microwave aptitude for technology, but I can't understand why you want a safety net when a podcast fails because missteps are harmless in the learning experience. I mean, who cares? I mean, it's not like, you know, we're defusing bombs or something. And there's going to be interviewees who are going to give me dead air and there's going to be one word answers where I don't have a good response and I'm going to need to just figure out how to get through it. There's going to be topics that fizzle and mid pod, I'm going to have to pivot on a dime to some adjacent talking point, you know, like a monkey swinging limb to limb. I got to be able to adapt on my feet. I'm gonna be, there's going to be things I'm not prepared for. Like, right. I mean, this one I've gone, I went like seven minutes in and failed Went 11 minutes in and failed. And yeah, it's frustrating, but you know what I mean? It's a learning experience. So I want the difficulty to be revved up to hard on the most important aspect of the medium. It's the content. And you know, it's how you deliver and how you connect with your listener. So I'm subscribed right now to 35 or so podcasts, and there isn't a single solitary one that I listen to because of editing, because of music intros, because of music outros, because of, you know, sound spots. I'm listening to these artists because they're experts in the field of interest. And when they talk through my earbuds, I feel a personal connection uh, from the podcaster. And that's what I want to do. So, you know, I kind of wrote down a mission statement and I basically want to do half education on entertainment, both on and offset and half be your buddy who you're firing quotes back and forth with at the bar. You know, just that balance of, I can introduce people who aren't familiar with the topic so they don't feel afraid but the nerddom I can get into too. And I kind of want to have a nice meshing, a nice milk and cookies of those two fields, yin and yang. So I'm hoping that's the vibe I'm giving off because I'm here for you. This is your entertainment exclusively. I mean, maybe it's 10% my enjoyment talking about silly hypothetical fantasy questions pertaining to movies and television. And actually that leads me perfectly into today's scenario. It's a very what if kind of thing. Now bear with me because this is different than normal. This is a little darker. This is a little in depth. This is heavily detailed. I mean, buckle up. So this will either be a staple of like the max volume podcast from now on, or this will be a burning dumpster fire we will never talk about again. So let's do it. So let me set the scene. It's a late July evening. It's muggy out. You know, it's humid. It's 90 degrees. And you have an insatiable craving for some French vanilla ice cream or coconut crisp or mint chocolate chip, whatever your favorite is. Close your eyes. What kind of ice cream do you want right now? That's what you're craving right now. 
and you want it from your favorite, favorite local creamery. For me, it's Blank Slate. Shout out Blank Slate. But wherever it is, you know, I mean, that place is where you want to get it from. But it's past 10 p.m. and they're closed and, the, and you can't get into the shop. And, but you, you're thinking to yourself, no, I don't want to be denied this summer treat. So I'm going to do something a little bit dangerous, a little bit adventurous. So you dress in all black, you grab a ski mask from the closet, and you venture out into the night to break in and steal a vat of your chilled dessert of choice. You jimmy the lock, you locate the right flavor, and you grab one of those professional industrial ice cream scoops kind of on the way out. That's your cherry on top of your high Sunday. You know, that's the thing that, that's your treasure that you get to remember. Every time you use it, you'll remember about the time you broke the rules and got the ice cream you wanted. But suddenly, suddenly, you hear rattling behind you. You nervously spin around and you see the manager standing before you. So you panic, obviously. I mean, have you, anyone ever committed a crime like this before? I haven't. I would totally panic. I'd freak out. So in your panic, you fling the scoop at him as kind of a smoke screen so you might escape. Your aim is true, and pow, you nail him right in the noggin. But before you reach the door, you hear the undeniable sound of the manager's cranium hitting the solid metal ice cream freezer. Oh, man. The, echo, the echoing thud makes it real. So you turn, I feel like I'm reading a Dungeon and Dragons, uh, you know, kind of a summation. It's like, you hit the hydro, direct hit. No, nah, I mean, that's what this feels like. But th this is real. This is happening to you. Co so this is, so close your eyes and envision this. So you turn back and you see Mr. Baskin and Robbins bleeding on the floor. And you, I mean, you think to yourself, it's like, this isn't what I signed up for. This was an innocent frozen treat misdemeanor. No one was supposed to get hurt. So, I mean, you, you, you're a good person. You, you're a good Samaritan. You call an ambulance. You wait for help, but it's too late. You're a murderer. Can you wrap your head around that? You, who's played by the rules your whole life, you're a murderer. And the news cycle runs wild with you. Because, I mean, obviously, this is, I mean, a good story. I mean, someone breaks in to get ice cream and murder someone. They're calling you the double scoop assassin. And the judge assigned to your case inexplicably also has family members who died in dairy-related burglaries. So she runs wild on you for your first offender case, you know, just bad memories from her life. So she gives you the death penalty and it's given out. So for your delicious treat based crime, you're going to be sentenced to death in five calendar days. You're, I mean, and everything goes to chaos. Everything goes to crap. Like your parents are being hounded by the media, you know, outside of, on their lawn. Friends are writing tell all books on how they always saw this coming, that you pulled cattails or, you know, set off fireworks in people's pants when you were a kid. Your hometown changed its name to avoid association with you. I mean, this is a national story. This is like Lynn Sanity. This is just taking the world by storm. And you think to yourself, my God, where did it all go wrong? So now you're locked up. You're on death row. You have five days to live. And the prison psychologist, let's call him Mr. Pillow, because, you know, he's comforting. That's what I feel like. And also, I just looked at a pillow. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's my improv skills right there. So Mr. Pillow comes in the prison psychologist and tells you about the five stages of grief you're about to go through regarding your own early demise. They are as follows. They're denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The prison has its new program that allows you to watch one movie of your own choosing on each topic in chronologically staged order as it's found to calm inmates before their demise. So now it's your turn to pick five films before you meet your maker. What are your picks? So, wow, uh, <laughs> I might have gone a little overboard on the backstory, but I wanted to put you in the proper mindset for the lofty task ahead of us. You know, this is when I heard 
the guy who played Dwight Schrute on The Office wrote a whole backstory, like his whole family lineage, how he grew up, all that kind of stuff. So he knew things internally that the audience didn't. And it showed, you know what I mean? It made him a more full character. So these are going to make more full choices for you when you think about this. So you're welcome. Because you got to remember, these are the last movies you're going to ever enjoy. And these picks are the difference from like a smooth boat ride down the river sticks, you know, into like a warm bath into death. Or just a hellacious panic attack, your feet dragging, you're sobbing as you have your last seconds on earth and you're just screaming, I don't want to go. So, I mean, this is important. This is how you kind of calmly Zen Buddhist your way into the afterlife. So let's get into it. So first we got denial, which is the stubborn resistance of the human brain to accept the facts laid before us. It's like, no, I don't want to. I don't believe that. So easy pick for me. I'm going 2013 is The Great Gatsby. And this spawned from F. Scott Fitzgerald's book that we all read in sixth or seventh grade. And it's about Jake Gatsby, a 1922 millionaire trying to buy, fake, and posture his way into high society and win the societally out of reach dream girl, Daisy Buchanan, by throwing lavish parties and tempting her with a lifestyle he obtained illegally by being a bootlegger during Prohibition. Later in the movie, he gets murdered due to his double life and tempting fate. And... The, plot of, the theme of the movie is that it tragically shows, as Fitzgerald so eloquently wrote, there are no second acts in American life. You know, you are who you are. So this movie is brash, it's boisterous, it's loud, and that's kind of how all Baz Luhrmann-directed projects are. He did Moulin Rouge, Australia, Romeo and Juliet. Just, it's, like, it's like a Broadway show. It's kind of, you know, glitz, glam, dancing, uh, a lot of glitter, a lot of jewelry, you know, just over the top. And because of this, it's just very effective in delivering the message that denial of your true self is never going to end well. Because you have a beautifully blonde and suave Leonardo DiCaprio with endless means and an honest-to-God party castle. And even with all that firepower, neither he nor Daisy nor the society around him could ever see him as anything other than the poor soldier who was overcompensating for who he wished to be. So, I mean, if Leo can't do it, we can't do it. So, I mean, it's just hammering home to you. It's like if a gorgeous Leo, you know, in a golden castle with a bottomless pit of money can't do it, guess what? You can't deny yourself. And the book ends, and the book and movie end with this following passage. I'm going to quote it right now. It's a Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eludes us then, and but no matter, tomorrow we run faster, stretch our arms out further. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Which, I love that line, by the way. That, every time it gets me. I think, of, I mean, on my tombstone, I want that. So many interpret uh, Fitzgerald's quote as telling the audience that Gatsby's dogged determination to deny his past life and create a new one may have been in earnest, but was kind of a fool's errand. Because it doesn't close the door, uh, like, just because you open a new door of the future, it doesn't close the door on your past. And it's crucial to move on uh, from, I mean, from denial. So like, rather than him being so stubborn and just, I have to figure out this new life, he should have just accepted his old life and try to mesh the two. So I think this movie is a good example of how denial can be a wrecking ball towards you. So you need to let go of your denial. So if, Le I mean, if Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't get you to do it, I don't know what will. So now we're moving on to anger. And of course you're upset at this point. I mean, you're about to die because you wanted ice cream at an inappropriate hour. It's crazy. So what better way to let it out? Again, this is a kind of a cathartic anger experience. I went with 1999's Fight Club. 
So you got David Fincher directing the piss out of this Chuck Palahniuk masterpiece, who that's the writer, and Brad Pitt and Edward Norton are just beating the hell out of each other because they're tired of their lot in this commercialized Ikea life. So the movie is anger issues, basically. The narrator, Ed Norton, creates a split personality, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, to take down uh, kind of our cubicle, soul-crushing society by creating mayhem, murder, and social upheaval. So there's tons of underground bloody fistfights. There's poignant monologues about how pissed off we should be that we accept what society deems our worth to be. You know, it's very kind of like, these blue collar guys is like, why does society decide we have to be this? Shouldn't we just be, shouldn't we tap into our animalistic, you know, like lizard brains and just exist rather than, you know, strive for a nicer couch and better DKNY ties, you know, screw that. So, I mean, the question, the movie really asks, how can we flip the world on its head with a few well-timed explosions, kidnappings and general chaos creation? So it's a movie about silently raging men who are bored to the point of insanity by the lives they are forced to live. So it's something we can all relate to at some point. I mean, there's always a point when you're on hour three of an Excel spreadsheet or you're doing inventory or there's just something mundane and monotonous. And you've been doing it for years and you're like, how is this my life? And you know, you have that outer body experience and you're like, why am I even here? Why can't I just be out hunting a deer and, you know, making my own shelter? And, you know, I mean, we all exist as, you know, animalistic kind of, and, you know, tap into that, that side of us that really gets to be used. So the movie really poses the question, what if you dropped everything and tried to start a revolution to take it all down? And who cares if you're certifiably crazy? Like the way we live, the movie's projecting that the way we live already spawns insanity. So let's burn everything down to the ground and figure out what to do when we get to the ashes. I mean, it seems like that's happening, you know, in America right now too. So this is a fun, insane movie and it lets you feel heard and related to when it comes to your rage. And by the end, the vitriol in your soul kind of comes out in a puddle on the ground. So now you got done, you're done with your anger with me. So now on to bargaining. So of, this is the kind of vibe. Of course, we don't want to die. How could this be happening? There's got to be some way out of this. You know, who can I cut a deal with? Is there an escape route through the laundry room? Can I bribe the right guard in Bitcoin? Could I find some well-paid ninjas who could bust me out at the drop of a hat? I only got a few days. What can I do? So what movie best explains the fruitful, the fruitlessness of trying to wheel and deal in the face of the Reaper? I went with 2007's No Country for Old Men. This is from the brain of the nihilistic god king, Brett Easton Ellis, Ellis, God, it's hard to say, Brett Easton Ellis, there we go, and directed by the Coen brothers. So this is the perfect film to illustrate the kind of the fool's errand of resisting fate. So this is 1980 West Texas, you know, just it's hot, everyone's poor, uh, you know, very Southern, and there's a drug deal that goes wrong. There's mercenaries, there's lawmen, and random citizens get mixed up in a situation where a case of $2 million is being chased after by uh, by all these uh, parties involved. And so there's one guy, Anton Segur, uh, who's Javier, played by Javier Bardem, and he's essentially evil incarnate. And he has three separate scenes where characters beg, plead, and bargain for their life to no avail, because he's He's just socialist. He's just a sociopath. You know, he just doesn't even understand empathy. So he just smiles and does whatever he wants anyhow. So he straight shotgun blasts to the chest Woody Harrelson after Woody attempts a two-minute bribe. He's like, I got thirteen thousand dollars in account. We can just go down and get the money. And it's like I can just, I'm a day trader. We can just go home. And he's pleading for his life. Doesn't help. You know, Segura is not phased at all and just murders him right there. 
And there's another scene where he decides a gas station attendant's life should be on the line for no reason. He's just like, I think I'm going to murder this guy on the basis of a coin flip for fun. So even when he asks the attendant, the even when the attendant asks the whys and the hows of the coin toss, Shigeru kind of just bulldozes forward, telling him there's no options. He can either call it or not call it, but he's going to either, it's going to be one way or the other, and there's no getting out of it. And even when uh, Carla Jean Moss, who's the wife of the man who stole the money, uh, calls out Sigur and about the BS behind his coin toss, because she, pr- she pretty profoundly just states, it's like the coin doesn't have an, any say, it's just you. So she refuses to call it. It's another attempt at bargaining by refusing not to play, and she still, she still finds her end. He still kills her. It's brutal, too, because you don't, you're not sure it happens, but the whole movie, whenever there's blood near his feet, he kind of lifts his feet up because he hates getting blood on his shoes. So you don't see or hear if she got shot, but he walks out of the house and then he scrapes the bottom of his shoe as he leaves. And you're like, oh no, it's just a gut punch. And it's a movie without music. It's this beautiful barren landscape of West Texas. And it, it ends abruptly and it shows that there's no real meaning to all this. And, you know, failed dealings with the devil. So what? It's just going to, a lot of times it's just going to keep moving. Actually, at the end of the movie, it just has this little like second hand just clicking along. Just, it's just terrifying. So, I mean, the movie's about the frailty of life, kind of the unrelenting march of time and how there's no way to wheel and deal your way out of your fate. So even Shigeru gets randomly hit by a car near the end of the movie. He doesn't die, but he doesn't plead with or attempt with any to make a deal with anyone. He simply fixes his arm, takes a bike from a kid, and just keeps going, keeps moving. He asks zero questions, and he hobbles along to the next random scene. I mean, he's just, he realizes the world is random. So by the end of this movie, you have the bargaining gene spliced out of your DNA. So, I mean, this is that, that's what I'm trying to do with each one of these movies. It's like you get a full kind of blast to the face of that emotion and then it leaks out and you forget about it. That's what I'm thinking. So now we got depression. Now I could have gone full sad and thrown Requiem for a Dream out there, but these are your last five days. So there needs to be a silver lining and some joy in your heart when you're walking towards that human toaster. So I went like Diet Coke, family issue, personal struggles rather than Requiem's, you know, ubiquitous drug use and sex trade kind of stuff. So this is lighter. You know I mean? I want you to feel there needs to be a morality behind it a little bit. I mean, I know no country was kind of immoral, but there was some, I mean, it was, I mean, Requiem is just harsh. It's just, I want to make sure you feel okay when you're walking there. Like I said, we're going to be Zen Buddhist-like at the end. So I went 2001's Royal Tenenbaums. So this takes place in a world that's 87% New York City, 13% Wes Anderson, sad clown, artistic art interpretation of the world. And it's, it's about these eccentric members of a dysfunctional family that gather together under the same roof for a variety of reasons. So as we know, as all, everyone listening out there know, we all have family issues. Everyone has either been like ignored emotionally as a kid, dad left, mom was overbearing, there's just an endless list of how family both purposely and accidentally messes us up. And this movie hits them all. So Royal Tenenbaum, that's his name, re-enters his three, kid, three kids' life and his ex-wife's life after he runs out of money. And he fakes a serious illness to ingratiate himself with the family. So there's endless arguments. There's feelings of abandonment. There's suicide attempts. And there's this quiet deadpan comedy that hits an emotional core of sadness that we all kind of felt at one point or another. Y'all kind of wish you could just say exactly how sad you feel in just a flat, confident way towards other people. And this is kind of that expression. So, I mean, 
this isn't a movie that shies away from the melancholy. The family embraces what ails them. Like I said, they talk about it openly and eventually through discussion of the cloud of depression over the Tenenbaum house, they become kind of connected with understanding and appreciation for each other. Plus the soundtrack is just depression catnip. You got Emmett Rhodes, Bob Dylan. Uh, Elliot Smith is just the best depressed uh, singer ever. The song in this movie is Needle in the Hay. He was, so, I mean, he killed himself, I think, in 98 or 99. And if you want to listen to someone's sad, beautiful music, you listen to Elliot Smith. My God, that is a frail, beautiful man. And the movie itself kind of takes this view on depression that it isn't this black hole of despair if you share it with other people. So if you bring it out with close, the people closest with you, it's like you're in a foxhole with them and you're both trying to climb out together. So that feels like the right way to leave depression behind on your final few days of existence, right? Right. Like you want to make things right with your family. You want to clear all the airs. You want to get everything how, that you feel uh, wronged by out there, but in a positive way so you can grow from it. I mean, you got five days. This is the, the final of it. And finally, last emotion, we got acceptance. And I went 1994's The Shawshank Redemption. So first off, this is the greatest movie ever. Not, no contest, no nothing. This is the best movie of all time. It's about prison, mortality, and what, uh, what mentality is best suited for dealing with the mistakes in your life. So when you're trying to accept your fate and when to fight back, this is kind of that struggle and how, how people around you can help you focus your, in, into the right, like to, basically they can push you in the right direction. And it's inspiring, it's calming, it's cathartic, and I can't imagine a better movie as a curtain call to living than this cinematic gem. This feels like the right kind of wavelength you want to be, you know, going out on. So if you've been living under a rock for, for the last 30 years, let me just run through it really quickly with you. It's about two imprisoned men, Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, and Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And it's how they find redemption and peace through each other over decades of friendship in jail. So we meet Red in the film, and he's pretty much resigned to live his days out without possibility. And he did his crime. I think he was a murderer. And now he has the rest of his life to wallow and just kind of exist in nothingness. But through Andy, he kind of learns to accept that hope is a good thing, maybe the best of thing, and no good thing ever dies. God, I love that line. I mean, that's, the one, that's one of the best lines. I want that tattooed on me at some point. And through this newfound acceptance and forgiveness in himself, he finds joy and peace he ends up on a beach in Mexico with Andy after 30 long years of imprisonment and, you know, just brings you to tears, basically. And when Andy first gets to prison, he is in there for a crime he did not commit. His wife was murdered by some uh, traveler, but he gets put, he, they, they, uh, they pick him for it. And when he gets to jail, he's tortured by other inmates. And he somehow kind of internalizes that he deserves all this punishment because he was a kind of a cold, emotionless guy. He wasn't very, uh, he wasn't very forthcoming with his wife. And I mean, that's why he got, a, that's why they convicted him because he just seemed kind of cold and, you know, evil in the courtroom. But later uh, he accepts that he deserves happiness and that he should escape from prison to live out his days in peace. And that is the kind of calm internal approval we all want before we die. You know, that we deserve better. I want to give myself self-love and I deserve the better path. So, I mean, Red and Andy, I, I mean, Red and Andy's relationship is just really special to me. And just the fact that they can influence each other in a positive way like that to accept themselves and to accept a better life for themselves. That's, that's what I want out of friendship. 
Plus, when Red and Andy are walking on that empty Mexican beach at the end of the movie, I think it's in, the name of the town was Cihuataneo, I think. And then you just see these two lifelong friends embrace on that empty beach, you know, with a little raggedy boat after achieving their dreams as a direct result of the acceptance they learned from each other. And that feels like as close to heaven as a movie has ever got. I'm not even sure that's real, that moment. You know, I mean, that might be just, they both died <laughs> and that's, that's their heaven. So that's the five stages I got for you. So I hope you ponder about your five stages of grief films. And I hope it brings you comfort knowing that we all think about death and what emotions come along with it. I hope the Pacific Ocean is as blue as it is in, as it is in my dreams. I hope this delving into an emotional darkness of cinematic adventure wasn't a total waste. I hope this podcast made you think. And I hope you have a wonderful death row-free existence. So enjoy, enjoy being out there. Enjoy not being in jail. Congratulations. You're not the ice cream assassin. So enjoy the day. Later.